Welcome to the Friday q and I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and we're dealing with your questions from the live comments. This is where I'm just trying to meet whatever needs arise in your guys' questions. But I'm starting with a particular question I've selected, which is about John 1.1. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, that, that religion, that religious group, has their own translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. And in John 1.1, they actually translate the Bible very differently than pretty much everybody else on the planet ever does. They say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. Now this, it connects with their theology because the Jehovah's Witnesses are taught by their leaders that Jesus is not God, that the doctrine of the Trinity is false, that Jesus as as God Almighty is not a true thing. And John 1.1 1, 1 is, of course, one of the chief passages for teaching the deity of Christ in the Bible. So they've got to find some way around it. Well, lo and behold, they have their own translation that finds a way around it. Let me explain to you, though, uh, before I go to your guys' questions, we're collecting your questions, as you guys know. I think most of you know. <laughs> You're adding your questions by putting a cue in front of your comment, and we're taking those live right now. I'll take up to 20 today, and I'll answer them as, as many as I can anyways. Um, but let me show you what it looks like in the actual Greek. And you don't need to know Greek to know any of the stuff I'm about to show you here. Okay, this is this is not necessary. But check this out. So here is John 1.1 1, 1 in the Greek. And so we have the English right here. I'm using Logos Bible software and it, it has all sorts of resources like this you can, uh, you can find. And they're not paying me to say that. <laughs> um, Anyway, but here's the Greek, like an arche ein halagas, kai halagas, ein prostantheon, kai theos, ein halagas. Okay, um, and even even the pronunciation of all that stuff, people are going to debate on how it's properly pronounced, and I actually don't care if I get it right or not. That's just the kind of guy I am, <laughs> but but I still try. Um, at any rate, the word the word for God is right here. It's it's theon, right? Then we have theos, which is just the, it's the word for God. It's just a different ending. Greek changes endings all the time. So it's still the same word. Um, now, what's interesting is that when it says the word was with God, it has this this word ton before the word God, which is like the English word the. It's a definite article. And, I, and now this might get a little confusing, but don't worry. I'm going to break it down in a simplistic way, and then I'll move on real quick to other things. I, I just don't want people to tune out because some people have very little tolerance for things they don't understand. <laughs> and and I'm, it's not good to be like that, actually, if you want to continue to learn and grow as a Christian. At any rate, um, the word ton theon. So the, the, what the Jehovah's Witnesses will say is the word ton there, the definite article translate, you could translate as the English word, the, the God is, is how that is. So then they would say this phrase, the word was with God refers to the word was with God almighty, right? Like was with God almighty, the typical Christian understanding of God. But then when it says the word was God, the, um, the ton is missing or there is no, there is no definite article. It wouldn't be a ton, but it would be a definite article and it's missing. It just says Kai or and God was the word. And we translate, we move it around in English here a little bit and the word was God. So they're saying because the definite article is missing from the second statement, they're going to translate it not as God, but as a God. This makes sense a little bit um, in English. It sort of makes sense. But the problem is that this is definitely not how the Greek is supposed to be read. Greek does tend to be very complex. And you don't need... Here's the bottom line, guys. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but I've read Greek scholars on this topic. So I'm sharing with you. Um, you, you don't need the definite article in order for it to mean God, like capital G, instead of a God, lowercase g. You don't need the definite article. An example of this is John chapter 1, verse 6. John 1, 6. 
Let me give you an example. In John, John 1, 6, it says there was a man. Oh, here we go. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, if you look in the Greek, the definite article is not there in John 1, 6. It just says God. It doesn't say a God. Or it doesn't say the God, excuse me. But still, they translate this in the New World Translation. They translate John 1, 6 as God Almighty. So even the Jehovah's Witnesses know that you don't need the definite article to understand the meaning of that word. In fact, it turns out that this passage, John 1, 1, the reason why the definite article is missing is because if it was there, it would create confusion about the identity of Jesus. What I'm saying is it's not a, it's not a bug that the definite article is missing in the Greek. It's a feature. Let me read to you from Dan Wallace. He's a premier New Testament Greek scholar. He's done special studies in the use of the the the, uh, the definite article in Greek. Like this is a focus of study he's had, like geek out on that. And here's his comments on John 1.1. And Dan Wallace, his by the way, his his Greek Greek uh, grammar book, basically the teaching people how to how to learn Greek, that's like what's standard use in language schools where they're teaching Greek in language programs. At any rate, here's what he says, and I'm going to read it, then I'll explain it briefly for those who might get lost in the weeds. Then we're going to go to your questions, and it will be a little bit less Greeky today. Um, in brief, its emphatic position stresses the essence or quality. What God was, the word was, is how one translation brings out this force. Its lack of a definite article, and this is important, keeps us from identifying the person of the word, Jesus Christ, with the person of God, the Father. So the personhoods are not confused. I'm adding that. The personhoods are not confused, even though the being, the nature of them, is meant to be said to be the same. That is to say, the word order tells us that Jesus Christ has all the divine attributes that the, that the Father has. Lack of the article. Lack of the article, the thing the Jehovah's Witnesses will use to translate a God. It doesn't mean that. Instead, he says, quoting Dan Wallace here, lack of the article tells us that Jesus Christ is not the Father. John's wording here is beautifully compact. It is, in fact, one of the most elegantly terse theological statements one could ever find. As Martin Luther said, the lack of an article is against Sibelianism. The word order is against Arianism. In other words, now I'll translate all that for anybody who I might have lost uh, in the weeds there. <clears throat> because it's written with a definite article, the word was with God, definite article, and then no no definite article, the word was God. Because it's written that way, we, we fight against something called modalism or Sibelianism. That would be this whole idea that the, the father just turns into the son, that modalism is a heresy that we do not want to be believing. That's what John 1, 1 fights against. That's why the definite article is missing. This is why Jesus didn't as often say things like, I am God. He, he made the proclamation, but not all the time because it would confuse people into thinking he is the father, right? But we want multiple persons, one God, right? One being. And um, it also fights against Arianism or the idea that Jesus is, a, in Jehovah's Witness teaching, a lesser God, a some sort of lesser deity type being that's not God Almighty. In other words, John 1, 1 gives us the doctrine of the Trinity, the, the um, one being, three persons, is what it's consistent with. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses, again, are not consistent because they'll translate the, the, you know, when you get theos, you know, that Greek word for God, when you get it without the definite article, they do not always put a God. They don't even remotely do that. In fact, even in John one eighteen, I gave you one example in John one six, In John one eighteen, the word God appears twice, just like it does in John one one. Check this out. And then I'm going to your guys' questions today. In John 1.18, here's an example of the word God appearing twice. 
and they don't translate it consistently in the New World Translation. Um, so no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And here the word God is used the first time in, in reference, probably more in reference to the Father. And then the word God is used the second time in reference to the Son very clearly. John 1 is making it very clear. This is, it is God who becomes flesh and dwells among us. And the, the funny thing is, is both times, the, the word God here, it's, there's no definite article. There's no the God and then a God, right? If John was trying to make that difference between the Father and the Son, that the Father is ultimate God and Jesus is like some little God version, then he wouldn't have done what he did in John 1.18, where there's no definite article in either of these. Now, it's not needed to know you're talking about God Almighty. It's context that tells us that. So yeah, there's just no justification for the way that the Jehovah's Witness uh, New World Translation has handled the Greek text. And this is kind of made evident because the New World Translation, they won't even tell you who translated it, right? They keep the identity of these people secret. They pretend it's because of humility. Um, it's not because of humility. It's because they, want, they don't want accountability. They didn't have educated men. How do we know? One of the major leaders of the organization left the group and then gave out, divulged the names of the actual translators of the New World Translation, and they do not know what they're doing. And this is not that hard to find out. If you look up what actual Greek scholars are saying about the New World Translation, they say, look, this looks like first-year Greek students who have a theological axe to grind, and they're trying to change the text to fit what they want. So that answers, I hope, that question. This is the JW butchering of a central tenet of Christianity by changing the Bible to agree with their bad theology unjustifiably. And my heart goes out to Jehovah's Witnesses. This is an attack on you. You didn't do this. This has been done to you. You were told these things that are not true. And you were told to just trust the organization, trust the organization, trust the leaders. The governing body, you know, knows what's best and they're watching out for you. But it turns out that they're not, that they came up with bad theology and then Nowhere in the Bible could they find support for it. So they had to make their own translation. And then they hid who translated it because they wanted to hide the fact that it wasn't done with skill. All right, Jason Staub has a question. What does Matthew 24, 34 mean? What is all these things Jesus speaks of? Would the original audience slash early church have thought he was referring to the second and final coming? Let's look at this. And you know, it won't be too long before I'm going to be in, probably in January in uh, Mark 13, which deals with this, a parallel passage to this passage um, where Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and in things, you know, eschatology. Let's look at this passage. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So the question is ultimately, um, what is this generation? Now, now the way this has historically been used, I mean, in my life, I don't know about historically, like not a thousand years ago, <laughs> but, but in my life and a little before my life, before I was born, is people thought when, when Israel becomes a nation, you will have one generation before the coming of Christ. Israel became a nation in 1948. And so people said, well, we think a generation means 40 years. So in 1988, the second coming is going to happen, or at least the rapture, maybe the tribulation will begin. Some major end time event will happen in that 40, you know, at the end of that 40 years. Uh, some then said, no, no, it's a 70 year generation. And so you go from 1948 to, you know, 19, well, we recently passed, I think it'd be 1918. Is my math right? Um, not your 2018, excuse me. And, uh, and so you, you get these, these different, you know, well, maybe a generation is a hundred years, that kind of thing. I'm actually going to argue against identifying the gathering of the nation of Israel as 
a beginning point for this generation. And oh, what what I'm not, what I haven't told you is, <laughs> I take this generation to not refer to the people hearing Jesus talk. I think it I think um, it refers to those who are watching certain events take place. Certain events take place, and the parallel in Mark helps us a lot. Um, I probably won't go through all of this, but. Um, yeah. Okay, Jesus, let me just, I'll just do part of it because it's a massive section of scripture here. In verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Also, So also when you see all these things, you know that it is that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation, the one who sees all these things, will not pass away until these all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Um, in, in Mark, the parallel passage, Jesus gives one particular sign to watch for, which is the um, abomination of desolation. I know... This is too much to get into in a quick Q&A. Basically, there's, uh, you know, in, in my, my understanding of eschatology, there's an Antichrist figure who makes a deal with the uh, people of Israel to, pres to resume sacrifices in the temple, which we don't have yet, right? It would have to be built for this to take place. And then at some point, he interrupts those sacrifices. He's, he's announcing himself as God. He's sacrificing to himself, that kind of thing. He goes into the temple to try to take the place of God. And uh, at that point, you know that, any second now, right? Like it, it, this is the end time. I, I say second, not literally seconds, but you know, it's coming now. Um, but let me look at um, where Matthew does this. So gosh, okay, here's the deal. This is going to take a few more minutes, but I think it's worth it. When Jesus says all these things take place, here's the problem I have. People who push, you know, the end is nigh, the end is nigh. They tend to, to take one or two of the things Jesus talks about and then say, see, we're in that generation, right? Like increase of earthquakes, a plague, like what we got going on now. And they say, ah, that's the end. So let me read to you very briefly. Just scan through Jesus what he says here in Matthew 24. And let's try to take it in context. I'm trying to take, take the good blinders off that I think have been supplied by some end times preaching that has made it so people can't read this text as it is. Uh, Matthew 24, 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so there's a lot going on. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're asking about a lot of information there. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will lead many astray and you will hear of wars. Okay, first thing, notice the warning. Jesus is like, hey, the first thing about my coming is a lot of people will say it's happening when it's not. That's the first thing Jesus warns us about. And this is exactly what we see. I mean, 2020 is the year for false prophecy, right? Oh, it, it's, it's happening now. Um, so watch out for that. Then verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now we hear this and we think, oh, so if there's wars and rumors of wars, that's a sign of the end. Actually, no, Jesus is using this in the exact opposite way. You hear of wars and rumors of wars? See that you are not alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. And then he gives a, a list of things that do not signal the end. This is what people flip upside down. They think these are all signs of the, of the end. I think it's the opposite. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, earthquakes in various places. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. 
that's not the end. That's it's 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 not. Well, I should watch now for Jesus to come any moment now because we have famines and earthquakes and we have uh, wars. No, this is why World War II was not a sign that Jesus was returning. This is why World War One was not a sign. This is why the Black Plague was not a sign, even though people who lived in those times sometimes thought it was. Um, all these are but the beginning of birth pains, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So persecution and famine and pestilence and and wars and earthquakes, these are all things that are going to happen and that may even increase, especially the persecution, and the end has not yet come. It's not it. These are not signs. And that's where I'm going to disagree with a whole lot of other people. These are not signs. Then you get the one sign, the abomination of desolation. So when you see the des the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. That means go back to Daniel 9 probably and read and understand Okay, this is about uh, the Antichrist figure sacrificing to himself in the new built temple. Then let those who were in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. But alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning, uh, from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So, yeah, there's a sign, and then we launch into this great tribulation time, and it's like flee Jerusalem if you see that moment coming. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, you have a reminder, even when that's happening, if anyone says, look, there's Jesus, here's Jesus, because, of course, that's when this stuff starts to go down, everyone's going to be like, look, here's Jesus, come out here, here's Jesus, there's Jesus. He says, don't believe it. Do not believe it. Again, you're not looking for the return of Christ in, in, in that sense. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say to you, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In other words, you don't have to look for Jesus' coming like he's coming for you. Like... <laughs> It's like looking for the SWAT team when they're kicking down your door. Where are they? Where are they? Like, he's coming for you. You're not going to have to. Well, I wonder where Jesus is. Like he's he's coming. Then he talks about that. Um, and uh, there's a lot of content here. Um, I guess I'll just read through. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, which is could just refer to meteors, guys. We're not saying that, that like Beetlejuice is going to hit earth. Um, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It will be visible to all, the saved and the unsaved. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. And here's the, the puzzling part, right? Okay, does the fig tree refer to Israel? Is the sprouting of the fig tree Israel becoming a nation again? Is that the case? And it's not clear that that's the case. The main point of the fig tree is learn this lesson. Um, when you see the signs of a fig tree growing, you know the fruit is on its way. When you see the abomination of desolation, that's when you know the second coming is, is imminent. 
that's how I interpret Matthew 24. And I think that it derails a lot of the way people use that passage. Um, now, not everybody's going to agree with me on that, especially on eschatology. We're going to find godly Christians who have very different views on things. And we have to learn to live with each other and love each other in those things because these are secondary issues. I mean, in a sense, we're all going to find out how right and wrong we are at some point, And God give us wisdom between now and then. But basically, don't, you know, don't divide on these issues. But I do think that seems pretty pretty clearly that this passage, at least in my history, when I was growing up, when I was, I mean, growing up, I didn't really grow up in the church, but I was a teenager and in my 20s, and I heard this passage taught, I always heard it taught wrong. I mean, every single time I heard it taught wrong. And then studying it on my own, I went, wait a minute, these aren't signs of his coming. These are these are not signs of his coming. And I changed my view. So Jason, um, I gave you a little more time than usual for your question. Hope that helps. Um, a question from Hunter Kleist says, what does Matthew 24, 26, 46 mean? Well, let me see. I don't know that passage off the top of my head. Let me dig it up. And uh, let me just make sure I got the right verse here. I'll show it to you guys. You said, what does Matthew 26, 46 mean? Um, here Jesus says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Um, this might not be the verse you were, mean, you were mentioning because I don't see the challenging part of interpreting this verse. So Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and um, he's telling them, okay, get up. Here's my betrayer. Judas is coming with with the uh, the guard from you know the, the Jewish troops and he's going he's gonna to head forward into the crucifixion in that passage. So forgive me if there's more to that. I don't see what the challenging part is. I, I think if I was to offer an interpretation, it would be for us to recognize that Jesus knows he's going to be knows he will be betrayed, and he's voluntarily walking forward into it. He could have run the other way. That's all it would take. But no, he walks into it intentionally. Jesus is in control, even on his way to the cross. Um, Gloria Urban has a question. Can you explain the parable if of the ten virgins, Matthew 25, 1, it cannot possibly mean that half the church fails to enter in, or does it? Uh, no, um, I don't think it. I don't think that you can interpret it to mean that. Interesting how many Matthew-related questions there are. There's three in a row about Matthew. Interesting. Let's just read the t- together. Let's refresh ourselves on the parable of the ten virgins. And I may not offer um, everything I think it means, but what I can offer... There's, there's that, that horrible thing again. I turned it off. I don't know how it turns back on and only rings when I'm live. I have no, okay. The, um, I hope, hopefully you don't hear it that loud. Oh, it's so annoying. Um, okay. This is like youth ministry. I have to remember to just keep going, even though I'm distracted. That's what I have to remember is that skill I've developed over years. Uh, Matthew 25, one, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when they, when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but their, the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps as the bridegroom was delayed. And interesting that Jesus, so many of his parables, there's a long delay about the coming, a long delay. It's like he was trying to get people to be ready for the long delay between the first and second coming. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. 
And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those were, who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you, not, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Okay, so here's, here's the thought. Um, Jesus is talking about his second coming, not his first coming. Because he's in his first coming and he speaks about a future day or hour they don't know about. Here's another thought. There are, uh, this is a warning, it seems clear to me. This is a warning to those of us who call ourselves those that are waiting upon the bridegroom. I'm a Christian, I'm waiting upon the Lord. Or maybe you say, I'm Jewish, I'm waiting on the Messiah. Right? Those who are waiting on the promise of the Old Testament, that, that of the coming of the coming of, of the son of God. We are not safe because we say we're waiting. We're safe because we're truly waiting and ready. Now, does oil represent good works? I don't think so. Um, if, if oil does represent something, it may represent the actual Holy Spirit. So it may be that you have, you have this place in church, you have this place of if Christianity in your life, but you don't have like an actual relationship with God, which doesn't necessarily translate to emotional feelings. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit indwelling you because you've been born again. You've been actually saved. And there might be a parallel there because they can't share the oil. Look, it, it's not something I can share with you. I'd like to help you, but it, it can't be shared in the parable. And so um, my application would just be to make sure that we are actually, actually, really waiting on the Lord. That my, my, my life belongs to God. I do trust in Christ and I am waiting upon him. Um, and that could be applied in lots of different ways, but that's it. Now, if you say, does that mean half the Christians will be not saved and half will be saved? No, I don't think so. I think that that's actually a really weird use of the parables and, and, and you can't do it consistently. So when Jesus has the parable, of the sower, he has four different seeds, four different soils that, that, that exist. Well, if those four different soils, some people would say, well, then that means 25% will be saved or, or 75% will be saved, but only 25% will actually bear good fruit or something like that. And I just think, look, this is not the point. Jesus isn't giving us percentages. He's teaching us a lesson. So there's my, uh, there's my short answer there for you. Um, Dakota Ballard <clears throat> has a question. I've heard people support abortion using numbers five, specifically verse 27. What is your take on that? This is actually a topic that I've thought maybe one day I'll do like a little side project on um, because I've heard it as well. And it's usually people that are pretty insincere. I'm, I'm just being honest in my experience. Um, but uh, but at any rate, let, let's look at the passage here. And it, it, it does appear differently in different versions. Here's where different versions are making very big decisions. Different Bible versions are making very big decisions in this particular section. Um, basically, if a man feels that his wife is cheating on him and he's not sure, he, this is in the, in the, at the temple in, during the Old Testament, he can go to the temple or the tabernacle at the moment in Numbers. He can go to the, the tabernacle, go to the priest, and she'll drink this, this bitter water. They call it bitter water. It's, it's not actually harmful in and of itself. The water has no harm value in it. They write down like, uh, you know, I think if I remember right, they write down like a, like a curse, a consequence if she's lying about having committed adultery and she drinks the water and they, they scrape the, that consequence into the, into the drink. She drinks it. Then if she's guilty, then um, it has a consequence. I'll read in a second. If she's innocent, nothing happens. And I think this is partially just about making sure that the man is not, I mean, part of it's just, if she's innocent, nothing happens. Now on a human level, nothing would happen, right? When the description of the bitter water, nothing would happen to her. So unless God intervenes miraculously, every woman's going to be 
given vindication by God. And then the husband has to shut up <laughs> because he's just being jealous. Um, so it actually would serve to, to help them. It would be their vindication. And then the husband would have to be embarrassed that he even put her through that. So that would be a public vindication for her. But if God intervened, it says, and when, oh, put it on your screen. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, if she has cheated on him, the water that brings a curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain and her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away and the woman shall become a curse among her people. Now here's the debate, right? Is this describing an abortion? Is this describing an abortion? And I don't think it is. And now the NIV, if I remember correctly, the NIV translates it very um, plainly as if it is. I don't have the NIV ready here, but as if it is an abortion, you can look it up on your own. They, they translate it like the, her baby's going to die. And that's, I think that that is a mistake. Um, I really honestly do. I've looked in, I spent some hours on this topic. And yeah, so her womb shall swell, her thigh shall fall away, the woman shall become a curse among her people. I think what it means is that she won't be able to bear children in the future. Now, there's a chance it meant that she would actually die. But here's a random factoid from around the time of Jesus. The rabbis in Jesus' time had policies for how this procedure was to take place. And these policies go back to before 70 AD because they stopped doing this at that point. But they have policies. One of the policies is that if a woman is pregnant, that she is not to do the bitter water ritual until after the baby is born. Think about that for a second. That the Jews who were actually doing this they were not allowing it to be done to a woman who was pregnant. I think that's significant, right? Because if the whole point of this was that the child would die if she's, if she's pregnant, then why are they refusing to let, and they're doing this just to try to follow the, the ritual and create a better understanding of it because there's not a whole lot in the text here on it. So yeah, her womb swells, her thigh falls away. Um, these are not words that have to mean uh, that there's actually a baby there. And I don't think that there is. Uh, so yeah, I don't think that the pro choice advocates can can use this passage now there's other things to answer there that maybe would go on for another video like what if it was about a baby would that would that justify pro-choice um teaching and i'd say no this is this is because literally god's the only one who can do it and yes god has in divine judgment god could kill people that's divine judgment that doesn't mean you get to do it right god slew um he slew uh, the uh, the children of aaron right he, he killed the, the two the two priests that were the sons of Aaron. So I can kill priests now. Like this is just the craziest thing I've ever heard. So it wouldn't justify abortion. It would just be an uncomfortable passage in all honesty. But I don't think it's being interpreted right. Uh, Jason and Alana has a question. The Old Testament often calls the Old Covenant an eternal or everlasting covenant. If it is eternal and everlasting, how can there be a new covenant? Um, well, I, I think my short answer to this, Jason, and I do have to probably do some shorter answers here because of how far in we are. Uh, my short answer is that the the old covenant is, as Jesus says, I do not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. So if the old covenant is fulfilled in the new covenant, right? If Jesus on the cross, he actually obeys the old covenant and accomplishes the the yes um, approval rating of, of confirming and doing all the old covenant. And then when I identify with Christ, it's as though I, through Jesus, have also fulfilled the, uh, the old covenant then it's not really that it's been like destroyed or something like that. It's rather it's been fulfilled. And now because of fulfillment, I'm no longer subject to it. I'm no longer under it. It's the same as a, a, a tutor or, a, or a, um, a teacher. A teacher. This is what 
Paul talks about in Galatians. He's like, the law is like our schoolmaster, our teacher. It leads us to Christ. But now that we're mature and grown up, we don't need a teacher anymore. We still learn, the, we still keep the lessons, but we don't need the teacher. And that's kind of my attitude towards the law. I keep the lessons. Uh, I just don't need the teacher anymore. Um, their authority, I should say. Yeah. So that, so now I'll also add this, is that the new covenant is prophesied in the old covenant in Jeremiah. Like we, we get the teaching of the new covenant that's taught very clearly there. So the important thing is not that the new covenant is the same as the old, it's that the new covenant is consistent with the old. And we get that through fulfillment. That's my understanding. Lisa Kaminsky says, uh, if I don't read the Bible and pray every day, I feel a huge amount of guilt, like I've sinned and I'm not even worthy to be a Christian. Is this kind of guilty conscience or conviction healthy or not? I, Lisa, I, I definitely think it's not healthy. Anybody who's feeling that same way. There was a season in my, be super open with you guys, there was a season in my walk where I, I slowly realized because of just feeling guilt, right? Guilt over issues of sin. I realized that I was beginning every prayer with I'm sorry. And I... I came to this, I wasn't in ministry or anything like that at the time, but I just remember realizing at some point that I've just been, been giving every prayer with, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry. I just feel this. And part of that was because of, you know, compromise in my life. That's legit. That was part of its compromise in my life. But another part of it was just not understanding my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Imagine if someone came to you and every time they talk to you, they're just full of shame and they feel like they shouldn't be in your And they're like, I'm sorry, can I even talk to you? I'm, I'm so sorry. Lisa, can I even talk to you? Is it, am I allowed to be in your presence? And, and, and granted, you're not so great as God, right? Like, so you're like, yeah, but I'm not God, right? He's God, he's holy. But your blamelessness, your shamelessness, it comes from Jesus and not from you. So there's a, there's a healthiness in seeing the, 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 the guilt of sin. In recognizing I'm failing here, I have problems over here in my life, but the unhealthiness is when that guilt causes you to pull away from God, to reduce your relationship with God. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to seek the Lord. Instead, you have to stop and say, no, Lord, I come to you by the grace of Christ. I am clean because you cleaned me, not because I've kept myself clean. That is huge. And you need that. You need that in your heart. You need that awareness. Read Ephesians about how we're holy and without blame before him in love. It doesn't mean that you don't sin, but it does change the way in which you approach God. You know that you can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. You know, First John 2, 1, that if we, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's my righteousness, and that changes your attitude. So I, I hope that that helps balance things out a bit. You want to have the awareness of your right relationship with God without devaluing the, the, the you know, the problem of sin or the guilt that you may be feeling. You still want to deal with that, but you need to know that your relationship is established through Jesus and his blood. Caleb Lindsay has a question. In Mark 7, verses 27 through 28, do you think that this passage is a good way to highlight that the Eucharist is specifically spiritual and not physical flesh, or do you think it's not correlated enough? Okay, this is a cool question because it's an important topic and um, it's about not about the topic as much as it is about this particular scripture. So in Mark 7, 26 and 27, I think that's the passage you mentioned. 27 and 28. You said, and he said to her, Jesus is talking here to the Syrophoenician or the Gentile lady. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Um, 
my thought, Caleb, is at least immediately, and I have studied this when I did, you know, doing the Mark series. Uh, I don't see any particular connection to Eucharist um, or to the teaching of whether the, the 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 bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ in a physical sense. I don't I don't see any connection to that. So I wouldn't use this passage for that purpose. I think that the the, the Eucharist discussion is going to center probably primarily on John chapter six. And for that, you need the whole context of John. Anyway, it's a whole other study there <laughs> to talk about in that context. Uh, that's probably the chief passage, I think, that you'd have to go to and be ready to discuss. But I, I don't think I'd use Mark in there in there in that section. Bethany Ferguson says, "What is the rod in Proverbs thirteen twenty four? It is a is it a method of corporal punishment, or does it refer to a rod of truth with which we hold our children or households accountable to?" All right, let's look at Proverbs thirteen twenty four, and we will check it out together. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Okay, so the context, here's here's a contextual thing. The book of Proverbs is a wisdom book. It's wisdom literature, and so it is very often not meant to be taken too literally. I say too literally. We don't want to take it too liberally either and actually act like it's not saying what it's saying. What's clear in Proverbs 13.24 is that discipline is something you're supposed to do as an act of love to your kids. And it actually flips the script on those who say that it's abusive to, to, to discipline your kids, to give them real punishment for the things they do wrong. It's, it it re- reverses that and says, actually, it's abusive if you don't. You hate, you do not love your kid if you aren't disciplining them. Now, this also, to me, inspires something else, which is to say this, that discipline should always be born out of love and not anger. There's plenty of parents who discipline because they're mad. That's it. I'm just so angry. I'm just, now I'm coming after you. And it, and I'm familiar with this. Kids, when they grow up in a home like this, they don't learn right from wrong. They only learn to be a temperature emotion detector from their parents. They don't know that this is right and that's wrong. They just know dad's in an okay mood. I can do what I want. Dad's getting mad. I better stop. They're not really learning right from wrong. They're learning how to curb their lives around an angry person. And that is not good parenting. Okay. That's just should be easy to see that, right? This is just simple if you just follow walking in the spirit, right? Because you're not going to walk in anger, wrath, and malice. You're going to walk in love and patience and goodness. But this means that I should discipline and I should do it in love. That's what I get from Proverbs 13, 24. I should discipline my kids. I should do it in love. Now to your question, why does it mention a rod? Why does it mention a rod? And I think the answer is because in their culture, that's they would use a rod. They'd spank the kid with a rod. Now, you can spank a kid with your hand, and you might think that hands are better than rods, and I think that's not true at all. I'm sorry. I think hands aren't better than rods. It depends on how hard you hit. That's what, the, you know, like if you have a switch, like this little, little you know, stick or whatever, it just depends on how hard you hit. That's what it depends on. But it, well, hands are better than rods. Or you can't use hands or rods. Now, if you're going to say you can't use hands or rods, then this whole thing falls apart because you can't use the analogy of a rod or the, the example of a rod as discipline if using rods or hands or anything like it is actually immoral. That would be incompatible. So yes, the modern um, uh, treatment of discipline as though discipline is hate, and love is to not really discipline your kids and certainly not with spanking or something, you know, physical that hurts, not abuse, 
but but un, unpleasurable experiences. To uh, to say that is to go directly against the teaching of Scripture on parenting. So, yeah, people are just wrong. <laughs> um, Ryder Ness says, "Greetings, Mike." As a struggling Calvinist, could you explain the apparent favoritism of God throughout the Bible on why he chooses some over others? Example, Jacob over Esau, Abraham, prophets, and Moses. Um, Well, we're seeing chooses for very different purposes, aren't we, in this case? Uh, Jacob and Esau were not chosen for salvation, but they were chosen to be the one through whom God would raise up a nation, Israel. Okay, so God chooses Jacob over Esau. That's not a salvation choice. Abraham is chosen not just for salvation. It's not like Abraham was the only guy saved at the time. Abraham is chosen to raise up that same nation. Prophets are chosen to speak to the people. Moses is chosen because God wants to use him. And I think in many cases, these people are chosen because they're going to be pictures of the, of the Messiah or their lives are going to help paint those kinds of pictures. So it's it's not about them. The main thing about their cho- the choice of God who he chooses, and you see this really consistently, is that it's not based on their works. So Jacob's not chosen because he's better. Abraham's not chosen because he's better. The prophets, like Moses, he's like, I stutter. You know, he's got these compromises. He's got issues. Yet God chooses him and uses him over and over again. Jeremiah's like, I'm a youth. I don't know what I'm talking about. Isaiah says, like, I I have unclean lips. I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. There's these various people God chooses. It's not just that they feel unworthy, so it means they're humble. It's rather they're aware that they're they're not worthy. And so it makes them usable to God. So it's all by God's grace. It's grace, grace, grace over and over and over again. Like Abraham, he just believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So yes, step one, these choices aren't for salvation. They're for other purposes. Step two, they are illustrative illustrative of salvation because they're being used apart from works. They're not being used because of their goodness, but because of God's, God's grace in their life to use them. And um, you say you're a, a struggling Calvinist. The favoritism of God, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't call these things favoritism. Um, I don't think grace is favoritism. Yeah, I don't think so. Now, when it comes to salvation, salvation comes to us completely apart from works and purely by the grace of God. And I do think that I make a free will choice for salvation. So I don't think we can accuse God of any kind of favoritism in that regard. Um, As a Calvinist, you might have to deal with that differently. But I'll say this. If I was a Calvinist, I would not accuse God of being unjust. I think accusing God of being unjust is a symptom of a massive, massive human pride issue. I mean, a massive, gigantic, cancerous pride issue to even begin to accuse God of being unjust. I say that in all candor. I think it's dangerous. I think we're shaking our fist at our creator. And how could we possibly be right? The minute you think God is unjust, it just means you don't understand, but you're leaning on your understanding in that regard. So, writer, while I'm not a Calvinist, I'm saying... You, if you reject Calvinism, it should be because the theology is inaccurate. It shouldn't be because you're just so, um, you find intolerable this theology. I think we need to have a different reason. So I don't think many non-Calvinists will say that. Uh, Caleb Mc, McMurdy, McMurtry says, uh, Hi, Pastor Mike, love your ministry. In Genesis 9, Noah seems to curse Canaan for the actions of his father Ham. Do you think Noah cursed Canaan or is Moses emphasizing Canaan on purpose? I, I, I read it very plainly. I think that Moses, and I'll, I'm going to move real quick now because of the time. I think Moses did curse Canaan. Um, and you say it's because of the actions of his father, Ham. Um, all I'm going to say is this. We have this much of a story that is a real historical event. Families are complicated. You know this. You have a family. I think there's probably a lot more details we just don't have. And so 
what I would guess is that Canaan was implied in his father's sin and that what the father was doing, which may have been something much more perverse than what it looks like as you read it in English, that this was connected to Canaan as well and that Canaan was contributing or part of this as well. He was carrying it forward, um, something. So that would be my, my guess as to what happened there. But what I am acknowledging, even if I'm wrong about that detail, I'm acknowledging that we only have this much information and we're trying to guess, we're trying to fill in the blanks. The person who says uh, cursing Canaan for what Ham did is wrong, they're, they're just leaving the blanks and saying there is no other information there. At least I would say, look, you don't know what's going on here. Obviously, there's a reason for this curse going towards Ham, uh, Canaan. And we have a question from Steph T. How do you respond to the claim Jesus came to dismantle systems of oppression? Though he did dismantle systems like legalism, it also seems to diminish the gospel when it becomes the focus. I think that, um, okay, dismantle systems of oppression is a modern terminology that has a very large amount of baggage. And if we try to project that baggage, those worldview things, those political opinions onto Jesus by attaching the term systems of oppression onto Jesus, I think we, um, we're, we're setting ourselves up for creating a Jesus in our own image. Here's my political viewpoints. I'm going to use a political term that has a ton of baggage and I'm going to throw it at Jesus so that Jesus now has my political viewpoints. That's all that's happening there, in my opinion. Um, the biblical view of, and we're going to, on Wednesday, next Wednesday, I'm dealing with critical race theory stuff. I have Neil Shenvey to come on. And here's my, my heart on this. There's a biblical view of not being partial. But there is then this systems of oppression kind of perspective that seems different to me, seems very different to me. And it seems in some places unbiblical, while in other places it's advocating for true victims. It's really fighting for, for helping people who are oppressed, but its solution is not biblical, right? So they found a real problem, but the solution is not biblical. What do you do when you have a real problem and an unbiblical solution? You find a different solution, right? You, you acknowledge the problem. You care about it. You just don't use that solution. That would be my short answer. Uh, Delante Dingo says, Hi, Mike. My wife and I are wondering if the parable of the sower clarifies Hebrews 6. We both believe salvation is eternal. Um, the parable. Okay, so. All right. We may have to go a bit over time because I, in order to do this even partial justice, we all just have to look at the verses in in context. Well, at least read them. Um Hebrews 6 is, is, for me personally, one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. So as I teach the book of Hebrews after Mark, you better believe I'll be spending, again, a lot of hours on Hebrews 6 to try to offer, get the best clarity I can on it, and then offer it to you guys. But let me just read it for now. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Okay, there's a lot more that's there in Hebrews 6, but I want to put it in your, in your minds. Luke 8. The question is, does Luke 8 verses 4 through 15, the parable of the sower, have a connection to Hebrews 6? And I'm not going to read all this, but the parable of the sower, Jesus gives four different kinds of soils. They represent different people who hear the word. These people... Um, one of them, they hear the word and it falls on rocky soil. It represents the person who doesn't, it doesn't even get it. Okay. Well, that couldn't apply to Hebrews six. Then there's a person who hears the word and it falls among the, the stones 
and it grows quickly. So they appear to be saved. They appear to be bearing, they're not going to bear any fruit actually, but they appear to be a live plant kind of thing. The seed grows and then the sun comes up and it withers the plant. And this represents the person who uh, shrugs away and turns away from Christ because of persecution. The next soil is the person who um, it's the seed falls amongst thorns or weeds and it grows up and it's choked out. And this is people who care about the world, basically. The the cares, the desire for other things and the deceitfulness of riches, they enter in and choke out the word so that it becomes unfruitful. And then finally, the fourth soil is good soil. Is it possible that Hebrews 6 is talking about the second or third kind of soil? Couldn't be the first one. Second or third. There's some sort of apparent reception and then they, they fall away um, and they don't bear fruit. Um, I think that we may be projecting too much into the passage in Luke. I'm not sure whether the second and third soil are saved or unsaved in the Luke passage. I don't know that we're meant to determine that based on the passage. So, yeah. My short answer though, Hebrews 6, I think the best ways that I've seen for trying to find a once saved, always saved interpretation of Hebrews 6 is finding it as either a corporate view of um, of Israel. It's about Israel having received the watering of God and the Holy Spirit corporately, which doesn't mean they were all saved. And then they've rejected the Messiah, and then, and they've received, they saw the work of the spirit. They saw all the miracles and they rejected Jesus. And then you can't, you, look, you can't restore them to repentance. Like the, the, all the ministry has been done. Like it's between them and God. You're not going to be able to do it. That's one option. I don't, I'm not saying that's my option, but that's an option. Another option is to just take that phrase restored unto repentance and say, it's not something you can do. Look, they've been rejecting so much of what God's doing. It's not something you can do to fix the situation. It doesn't mean that they can't be saved at all. It just means you should move on. I, I think that's a little fishy. And I think it's even more fishy if you just say it's not reference. It's referencing people who just look saved but aren't saved. I, I think that is even a fishier interpretation. All right. There's some of my short answers. I hope that those are fruitful for you guys. Um, JW has a question. I don't feel the witness of the Holy Spirit or a love for God. I trust Christ to save me, but I'm not seeing fruit. Does the inward work of God take longer for some people? Well, I was thinking about this recently. Um, it's easy to paint with broad strokes when it comes to things like this. Broad stroke, the witness of the Holy Spirit. And, and you maybe, maybe you're raised in an environment where you think the witness of the Holy Spirit is this incredible emotional high. I mean, it could be, but there's no teaching in scripture that it is. So... I wouldn't put that standard there. I think the witness of the Holy Spirit is about awareness, primarily about awareness of a sonship, daughtership relationship with God. That by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father, Romans 8, that it's this awareness of I'm a child of God. It's a mental awareness. It, it's, a, it's a conviction of truth. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a, an emotional experience. Not that it can't include that or involve that in some respect. Um, now, when you say you don't feel a love for God, again, this broad strokes, well, then you're not saved. You don't love God, you're not saved. Broad strokes. Okay, but what do you mean by love for God? It's possible, JW, which you, I'm sure you're not Jehovah's Witness. You just have the unfortunate initials. Um, it's possible that you you do love God, but you, you don't feel the emotional side of things as strongly. And that would connect to this concern about the witness. It may be just that you're thinking you're supposed to have more emotions than you do. And you feel like those lack of emotions reflect a lack of salvation. And I would say that, oh, well, you just have the wrong expectation. You know, when I, I know a husband who would love his wife in doing nice things for her all the time, but he really struggled because he told me, sometimes I just don't feel like doing it, right? Like I'm loving her with actions, but I don't, I don't always want to, and I don't always like desire to with my whole self. Like I'm just doing it because I should. And I, and I, in my head, I'm like, well, that's love. 
you don't want to and you do it anyway, like that is exactly what love is. Like it's, it's more loving to do it when you don't want to than it is to do it when you do want to because it involves sacrifice. So there's this, there's this, there's an aspect of this that might just be you're just you're you're processing things through the emotional lens and not through the biblical view of love, which is the self-sacrifice pictured on the cross, patient, gentle, kind, all those kinds of things are all behaviors. They're not just feelings. They're not just feelings. So in that sense, I would liberate you from worrying about the, how you feel about things. So the the inward God the inward work of God may take does take longer on some people than others. I would agree with you there. The issue here is. Um, uh, to just make sure that you're expecting the right kind of work. The ultimate work of God is in our character and our convictions, not necessarily our feelings. And that should liberate a lot of us. Lavelle Martinez says, is the anointing a real thing? The anointing, she puts in quotes, is it a real thing or is it just another word for the Holy Spirit? And can we get an anointing today and any verses to support your argument? Um, is the anointing a real thing? I, I honestly, Lavelle, I'm not really sure what context you're hearing this from. So I'm, I'm probably not gonna be able to answer it super on target. Like if I saw a video where someone's teaching about the anointing, um, there are things people are anointed for in the, especially in the old Testament, you know, Saul was anointed King. Then David was anointed after him. Uh, Jesus, he, he was anointed by the Holy spirit. Like the Holy spirit actually came upon him. Uh, we, we often use anointing to refer to like not only being saved, but being called to something rather specific. That's more Old Testament. I don't see that as much after Christ. Um, and, but I'm open to that. I'm open to the, you know, God's called you to a specific thing, like you're anointed for this. When I say anointing, I'm thinking oil. I'm connecting it to the Holy Spirit symbolically. And so I'm thinking you've been given a spiritual gift and calling to do certain things. I'm totally open to that, right? But when you form, formalize it too much and you go like the anointing, did you get the anointing? Do you have the anointing? What's your anointing? I think we're we're formalizing this too much and that isn't as open to the actual work of the Holy Spirit because we're turning it into like a like a packaged thing, right? Like now it's now it's got like a stamp on it. The stamp says the anointing and we figured out how to like how to mass produce it and, and sell it. So I'm concerned about that. Um Here's uh, Emily Bain says, how do we reconcile forgiveness for our sins by his work on the cross with being examined on judgment day? If we sin and receive forgiveness, will that be brought up again when we stand before God? Um, I think the easiest way, Emily, to reconcile these is to recognize that the primary focus of judgment for believers is your works are being judged. And I wonder if I can find... Um, I wonder if I can find a ver the verse I'm thinking of here. 1 Corinthians 3. I'll bring it up to you guys, okay? And notice that this is about your works being tested. So Paul talks about his ministry work and he talks about his future judgment for his ministry work. And notice how he separates his works being judged from him being judged like as if, as if he'll, uh, you know, he's going to get access to heaven or not. It's not about that. He says, according to the grace of, uh, given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Now he's talking about building, not a real building, but he's building in the church. He gives the gospel, right? And, and someone else is building upon it. Someone else came and ministered to those people after they got saved. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ, uh, Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So now he's just elaborating on his analogy. He's like serving the Lord is like you're building something. 
And if you serve God well, it's like you're building with good things like gold, silver, precious stones. If you serve the Lord poorly, it's like wood, hay, and straw, perishable items. So then he talks about judgment when we stand before God. Each one's work will be will become manifest for the day will dis disclose it in the day's judgment day for believers because it will be revealed by fire. Now, in the analogy of these works, right, you have, you have uh, gold, silver, and precious stones. Well, when fire hits those, it doesn't hurt them. When, when fire hits wood, hay, and straw, it destroys them. Keep that in mind. It's not the person. It's the works. It's the things they did that are being judged in this text. So the fire, um, it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will, will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that one, uh, anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So this is about rewards. not. Uh, and then what happens if you have wood, hay, and straw? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. What loss? The loss of all the work, all the labor he did because he did it proud. He did it arrogantly. He did it unbiblically. He did it inconsistently with true Christianity. He didn't build into people's lives. These are just bad pastors and bad people who are ministering poorly into the lives of others around them. He's going to suffer loss. There's going to be no fruit from all that labor. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, which... It's not about purgatory. The fire here is the testing of your works. You still enter heaven, but you just have no treasures above and beyond simple salvation that you can be uh, be storing up in heaven. That would be uh, how I would differentiate. Now, the unbelievers tested by their works and they're punished according to their sins. And that's a very different thing, isn't it? Because they're not still saved as through fire. They're not like that. Uh, John Ed Jonathan Edwards has a question. Pastor Mike would you ever recommend the Message Bible? Any possible problems you see with it? Thank you again for your ministry, brother. It has helped me think biblically about everything. Awesome. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Um, really, like that means the world to me. Um, the Message Bible, I would not recommend in any way, shape, or form. And, and But here's the reason why, right? Yeah, people are like, well, you're just, a, you're just a King James only guy. Well, actually, no, right? You should see what the King James only people say about me. It's not usually very nice. Um, the Message Bible does not even attempt to truly communicate the original message of the original language it's it, it's a super colloquial translation which it's like an aw shucks like like cowboy midwestern translation is what it is now i know there's wrong with being an aw shucks cowboy right but when you take the words of the text of the bible and you try to translate them into idioms that are like middle america 1960s 50s 40s idioms and sayings it it's different it catches people new um but it's not like faithful to the text so um, no, I don't think the message is faithful to the text of scripture. I think it's cute, but I don't want cute. Hey, look, you know, here's what Jesus said. Well, here's a cute version of that. Like, I don't care. I don't want that Bible. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would say it's not very good. Now, even the, even the guy who made the message Bible said he didn't think people should use this as their primary Bible. Uh, the story of it goes like this. He did like, I think it was Ephesians he did first and he just did it for his congregation. And it was like, he was having fun. People loved it. People loved it. Publishers were like, yes, let's make more of this stuff. So then it just it just snowballed. So popular demand and lack of discernment amongst normal, normal people who would rather have something easy to read and cute than what's accurate has created the popularity of the Message Bible. That's my short, uh, blunt answer. Uh, Samuel Nelson says, do you think that some people focus too much on extravagant mission trips or campaigns instead of evangelizing by acting good in the world? Well, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. So let me take them separately. Um, evangelizing by acting good in the world is something we all ought to be doing. Of course, acting good in the world has to be coupled with actually preaching the gospel. 
because the gospel's information. And no matter how good I am, they won't know about Jesus informationally unless I tell them. So those should, should be together. But extravagant mission trips or campaigns, I've long struggled with mission trips. And I, and I want to be careful here because I'm not trying to create skepticism in the heart of Christians. Look, I've never done a mission trip that was a that was like a bad idea. Like, boy, I should have stayed home. Like, I never like that, okay? But I've had mission trips that I went on where I thought there was a better way to use my time and money. Like, I traveled to a foreign country. We spent, you know, our group maybe spent fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 to get out here and then be here for this many days. If we had just raised that money and just gave it to local missionaries, it would have had a way bigger impact. That just, I, I never got over that. I've heard people say that mission trips are more about discipling the people who go short-term missions, excuse me, short-term mission trips, long-term is a whole different story and is, is, is actually the more worthwhile venture in my opinion. Um, but short-term mission trips, I've heard people say, it's not really about the mission trip. It's about discipling the people who go. And I actually, that is where it's huge. This is huge. There's often mission trips are a, a big change of life for the person who goes. They get out of their routine. They're focused on seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness for like a whole week instead of for two hours on Sunday. And, um, and that does, that can change lives. But I, I just still, you know, like I'm in Costa Rica and I'm trying to preach the gospel and I have this great Christian who's translating for me. And I'm thinking they're translating for me. They would be better at this than I would. They would be better at preaching to their own people, the gospel than I am through a translator. Like I'm wondering why we're spending all this money on this stuff. It's not the most efficient way to do ministry. And that's my concern with mission trips is the efficiency of it. Um, the ones I've been on now, I have been on somewhere. Literally, we just we just went out and preached and preached and preached, and it was more it was dif- more difficult, but I think more important. But then there's other ones where like you go and we're visiting a church and we're going to clean there. We're going to clean the church, and I'm like, I paid fifteen hundred dollars to come out here and clean this church. We could have sent them two hundred dollars. They would have hired a janitor for a day, right? Like I just feel like it wasn't wise. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. That's what I struggle with when it comes to mission trips. Um, someone out there does them really great. I know, and maybe you're watching and you're like, Mike, you're not talking about the way we do it. Like, well, you know, post your comment down below and say, look, we do this on our mission trips and let everybody know about your awesome mission trip because someone's got to be doing it well. I don't feel that I've done it super well in the past. Um, although it still was worth it. It still was worth it. In, in the Philippines, I got to preach to like a whole crowd of people. It's like a Harvest Crusade event, you know, and people did come forward to 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 receive Christ after a very honest, open, real message about it, you know, and I think that was absolutely worth the whole trip. I just think that the trip could have been thought through better <laughs> at the same time. Um, okay. Uh, question number 19, I think, unless I skipped one. Um, hi, Mike, this is from Woolpack. First Corinthians six twelve and first Corinthians 10, 22. Paul says all things are lawful. I know he isn't talking about sinful things, but is he talking about the law? I need some clarification. Thanks. So in 1 Corinthians, in these passages, it appears that what Paul is doing is he's actually um, quoting them and then responding to what they're saying. I must have typed something wrong there. There we go. Um, So in these passages, he seems to be quoting them. That's why in some translations like the ESV, they actually put it in quotes. All things are lawful for me. And then Paul's correcting their misunderstanding or their overreach. But, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, they say to Paul. And he says, yeah, but I'm not going to be dominated by anything. Like, I'm not going to be addicted to something just because I have permission to have, that all things are lawful. When he talks about all things are lawful, what's he mean? Well, he specifically connects it to food, 
right? Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, which again makes me feel like it's talking about the Old Testament law that was given to Israel. Now, I'm going to quickly say in the Old Testament, we have laws that are for all people. Like, they're not laws like part of the Old Testament law. They're simply God's rules for all people. We get this in Genesis. Murder is wrong, not because it's in the Old Testament law given to Israel. It's wrong for all people of all time. Homosexuality is also on that list, wrong for all people of all time. And I'm talking about the behavior, not a, not an inclination. Okay, inclination is temptation. Everyone experiences temptation of different stripes. And yet, then there's the law, like about, and, and one way to, separate is say, hey, food, like what you eat, what you don't eat, that is a mosaic law thing. And in that sense, all things are lawful for me. But Paul's going to just sort of say, hey, okay, I get it. You have liberty in Christ. But for those who recognize their liberty in Christ, they need to recognize not everything's good for you, though. You should still ask, is it helpful? Is it healthy? Is it good for me? You know, all things are lawful for me, but but don't like become controlled by something. Don't let something overwhelm and control your life and take your eyes off the Lord or become a sin because of how much you do it. Um, and then you had another passage, which was First Corinthians 10, something, 22. Oh, my typing is all wacky today. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Um, I'm not sure how First Corinthians 10, 22 relates directly to that concept that I just talked about a moment ago. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I mean, I mean, ultimately this is, this is saying, um, oh, 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 okay. I get it. You're looking at the overall conversation, not just, not just 1022. He's talking about idols, right? So, um, there's this, there's this balance and maybe this will help for you. I'm not going to explain the whole issue for everybody, but, um, the Bible at one point says like, it implies like, don't eat food that's been offered to idols. Don't be involved in anything with an idol's temple. Don't be involved in that stuff at all. At another point, it's like, hey, go ahead and eat the food. Don't even ask whether it's offered to an idol. When we understand that there's what's going on in the temples, in the idolatrous temples, and there's what's being sold in the marketplace, and these are different issues. In the marketplace, they're selling meat that may have been sacrificed to idols. And he's telling the Christians, look, idols are nothing, right? Ultimately, God is God. And so partake of what you want. Don't even worry about it. Don't ask. But if people are seeing that you're eating this food and they're thinking it's offered to idols or an unbeliever invites you over and they tell you, I offered this to an idol and they're watching to see if you'll eat it. He's like, here, you don't eat it, right? This is about spiritual wisdom. And then um, 1 Corinthians 10 gets into this as well. And he's talking here about fleeing, actually not just eating of idols food, but actually participating in some measure of idolatry. Now, realizing these are all different layers of this, of a similar issue, is what makes the verses make more sense. You know, don't participate in idolatry in any fashion. But if I happen to buy food that somebody happened to sacrifice to some idol or offer to some idol, wave before an idol before they sold it, that's not on me and I'm not even really going to be aware of it. I'm just going to partake because idols are nothing. But if they're like, hey, I, I, I wave this in front of the idol and they hand it to you, now you're like, okay, you know, now you're trying to Im- implicate me in your, your worship of idols. I'm not going to be part of that. I hope, as I always say, hope that that's helpful to you. Uh, last question for today. Sarah Titano says, or Titano, Hi, Brother Mike. I've heard some churches teach the holy kiss, 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty. That's where Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, is a commandment. I'm curious about your thoughts on the matter. Thank you for all you do. Love your work. This is actually a really great um, uh, passage for illustrating an, an issue we have to ask as we read the New Testament or the Old. Is this a 
direct thing I have to obey literally, like exactly, or is it a principle that I apply differently in different cultures? That's a real challenge. And in 1 Corinthians in particular, it becomes a challenge. So greet one another with a holy kiss. He just throws it out there with a holy kiss. Now, I actually had a pastor suggest to me that teenage boys and girls could French kiss each other. Because I left this church after this because um, the text said, greet one another with a holy kiss. And then he chuckled as he decided to not deal with any sin issues going on in his church. Um, that not unmarried people can just French kiss and it's no big deal because 1 Corinthians 16. And I think that is insane. Um, this actually would have been between men and men, right? Women and women. The, the holy kisses were not going between an unmarried man and another unmarried woman or something like that. Um, so it's entirely appropriate in their culture. Now, the idea of greeting one another with a holy kiss is this idea of, of regular open affection and love being presented between body members of the body of Christ. But if I'm going to take this literally, especially during, say, COVID, or like, say, I, I have something wrong with me, like I've got like cold sores on my face. That's like a problem, right? I, so I think that my wisdom on this is First Corinthians, um, this passage really is culturally applied to them. He tells the Corinthians, I want you to greet one another with a holy kiss. And there's no reason to think that this is a command to all Christians of all times, that that's the way to greet from now on. I think the principle is that we greet one another with love and with compassion and that we we have at the outset of our conversations, the outset of our gathering, an attitude of embracing and love. And we don't walk up like timidly, do I really belong? Do they really belong? Do I like me? Do they like them? And all these insecurities that keep us from connecting with one another. Instead, we have an atmosphere of love and acceptance and embracing and, and caring for one another individually um, in the way that we even greet each other. I think that's the application. So I could a longer study on the topic would probably be suitable. But yeah, yeah, there, there's no other place in scripture that teaches that kisses are required with greetings. We do know it's a cultural thing that's happening in their time. So when he tells them to do it, he's telling them to do something they're already naturally doing. He's just implying that this is an emphasis in the church. And uh, we can still have that same emphasis even if we don't actually kiss. And I'll tell you what, I'm not comfortable with some random person coming up and kissing me. Uh, don't. <laughs> Please don't greet me with a holy kiss. And I'll tell you what, here's, here's a help in the text. Is it really holy? If it's not welcomed, is it really holy if it's culturally odd for someone to want to come up and kiss me, especially a guy or a girl? Like either way, it's a little weird, right? For me personally. Um, yeah, I'm not really comfortable with that. I didn't grow up with that. Um, I like my personal space. That's me. So the, the way you could greet me with a holy kiss is just to actually care about me when you see me. That's it. You just care about me and it becomes evident. And then we all have a wonderful fellowship. So that is all for today. Thank you so much for joining everybody. Um, Monday, I'm, let me give you a preview here. Monday, I'm going over the Mirror Bible. That's this thing right here. Literally, no, I'm not exaggerating. The worst Bible translation I've ever looked into. I'm sure there's worse ones out there, maybe somewhere. I, this is the worst one I've ever looked into. Okay, I'd rather you read the message. I'd rather you read the Passion. Okay, although I don't want you reading either of those, actually. This is so horribly bad. And I'm just going to walk through it step by step. If you have been influenced by Francois Dutoy, if you have been influenced by the Mirror Bible, please be there Monday. Or if you know someone who has, because I'm going to walk through the specific issues that are going on there and the, the outright deceptive things. But here's the crazy thing. Francois Dutoy is a brilliant and very likable man. 
and he is very sincere. And that's what makes it worse. Brilliant, likable, sincere. I have seen this over and over again. We've got to learn that people who lead false religions, cults, or other sorts of things, they're sincere all the time. We just we assume that they know what they're doing is wrong and they're doing it all on purpose. But Satan, his best operatives are the ones who believe in the mission and that they're just genuinely deceived. And this is a massive amount of self-deception and he's now pushing it out to a bunch of other people. So he's got a following in South Africa in particular and, um, and yeah. Well, Monday. Monday we'll get into all that in great detail. I'll see you there at 1 p.m. Pacific time or you can watch the replay afterwards. Thank you so much for joining me. And as you work through these things in life, remember that um, it can it, it can feel like I'm just throwing all these random answers to random questions. But I hope that you see the, co the cohesion of it. That we're trying to patiently, thoughtfully think biblically about everything, which means that I want to understand things in context. I want to apply consistent principles to my interpretation of scripture and at the same time, consistent character as I follow Jesus Christ, because it's no good if I just interpret the Bible right, but I'm not applying it into my heart. And so that's my goal for myself and for you. And um, that's about it. Take care.